you hate when John Solomon is on because I've just got to rattle through so many questions uh, because he is a treasure trove of information. Welcome to the program, John. How are you? Uh, good to be with you, Glenn. Thank you. Good. I, I want to just try to keep this as rapid fire as we can because uh, sure. I've, I've got about 14 pages of questions. Um, wow. The, the uh, Democratic report is out. Your name is yeah. all over it. It includes your name on a list of AT&T phone records. Right. Does Schiff have the legal grounds to do this? How did he obtain it? Can he legally unmask an American citizen in the name in an official report like this? Well, first off, I don't have AT&T as a phone service, so those most likely aren't my records. They're likely someone else's records where my phone uh, calls show up. And, uh, you know, anytime the government uses its power in a subpoena or a warrant uh, or a um, – uh, you know, I think these were probably congressional subpoenas. We know they announced subpoenas for Lev Parnas and Rudy Giuliani. My suspicion, without having been able to get confirmation yet, is that my phone records just simply show up in, in, in some of their call logs that we know were subpoenaed. Um, anytime the government uses that power, it, it has a chilling effect on you as a reporter. Who wants to call me the next time if they think you know their records could be subpoenaed or, or shown on screen? But at the end of the day, what does it show? It shows I'm a reporter that was engaged in reporting. In, in March and April of 2019, the Russia Mueller report was coming down. Of course, I was talking to Rudy Giuliani. So was the New York Times and every other major news right. organization in America. Uh, they, they've made to look scandalous what is supposed to be, uh, what reporters do every day, talk well, to all sides of a story and, and do journalism. I wonder if you're going to file a lawsuit at all about, you know, being being followed by the government or with AT&T or the government if they didn't obtain it the, uh, the right way, uh, or really a lawsuit against the smears that are coming your way. Let me read something from the Washington Post. Last night, there was never any real story here. There were only an effort by Giuliani to scare up a bogus line attack against Democrats in preparation for the 2020 presidential election. The record demonstrates that Solomon's work advanced that campaign, end quote. Yeah, uh, I guess if you want to ignore the facts, you can take that position. And then the Washington Post has a good history of ignoring the facts. That's why they got... Uh, large parts of the Russia collusion story together. I'd, I'd compare my reporting on Russia collusion against theirs any days, and I think the American public's verdict will be clear. But let me let me describe what are the political issues, and then people can judge for themselves. Isn't it a fair issue to ask whether Joe Biden created the perception of a conflict of interest when he fired a prosecutor who he knew was overseeing an investigation of his son, regardless of his motive? Because I never established one way or the other what the motive was. I established the timeline and the facts that had happened. Those are public interest issues. And what did Adam Schiff's witnesses tell us? The State Department, two years, three years before I wrote my story, shared those same concerns and tried to raise them with Joe Biden. So there was a public interest there. The Washington Post apparently doesn't see that because it affects a Democrat. The second issue was there was a dysfunctional relationship between our U.S. Embassy and the Ukraine prosecutors charged with fighting corruption. Donald Trump's talking about corruption. They're criticizing him for maybe considering withholding aid because of corruption. Well, if the State Department has a bad relationship with the people fighting corruption, you're never going to solve the problem. I highlighted those issues. Every one of those issues were confirmed in Adam Schiff's testimony. And, and then the third issue was there were 
isolated incidents by government officials in Ukraine to interfere in the U.S. election. Now, was it as systemic as, as Russia was found to be by our U.S. intelligence community? No, nor did I ever claim it. What I said was there were these isolated instances where a DNC contractor seeks dirt from the embassy, where the ambassador writes an op-ed criticizing Donald Trump in the middle election, and where two government officials knowingly and willfully released evidence they weren't supposed to release to force Paul Manafort's resignation. And by the way, a Ukraine court concluded that was an intrusion on the U.S. election. Those are three legitimate journalism storylines in the Washington Post by by its own admission, shows its bias by not acknowledging the importance of those issues to the American public. It's uh, something I have no, I have just never, I've never seen anything so obvious as this before. Yeah, um, they are trying to make it look and paint this picture that you, Giuliani, and his two associates, um, they used you as the engine for some sort of giant propaganda and smear operation. Can you address the relationship sure. and communications with Giuliani and his two associates? Absolutely. So uh, I have acknowledged uh, from the beginning, and my bosses were fully aware and approved of this, that, uh, that in March of 2019, after more than a year or nearly a year of reporting on Ukraine issues, I was still at a, uh, a loggerhead. I couldn't get some of these Ukraine officials to talk on the record. I knew everything on background, had lots of documents, mm-hmm. but... After a year of reporting, I didn't have anyone on, on record. Joe and Vic, Joe uh, DeGeneva and Victoria Tensing are, are two of my lawyers. I sent a draft or went over a draft with one of my stories with them saying, hey, could you go over libel and help me on some issues here? And they said, listen, you're struggling with this issue of being on the record. And I said, yes, I want to get people on the record. I want people to believe it because people put their name to it. And they said, well, we, we have this guy named Lev Parnas that we work with on some of our Ukrainian uh, cases. He's a translator. He, he's a facilitator. He knows a lot of people. Maybe he can help you get those people to talk on the record. And so before I knew Rudy was involved or had anything to do with it, I talked to Lev. Uh, Lev Parnas said, I know some of these people. Give me a list of people you want to interview. I gave him a list of four or five people. And he opened the door. When he opened the door, when he went out and got people to say, listen, uh, can you try talking to John Solomon? I then went through the official channels, that I, as I had been trying for months. I went through the press office of the prosecutor general and the press office of Sergei Lyshenko and others. And I confirmed these were legitimate interviews. These are going to be done free will and, and that we can put them on videotape so the world can see them. And I did exactly what a journalist does. And then and I got those interviews. Now, after my stories began emerging, um, Rudy Giuliani, who I talked about, uh, talked with a lot about the Russia case because he was the president's defense man on that case, occasionally would call me and he would uh, tell me something or he'd uh, offer to help. In the end, nothing. I can say this and I know Rudy would confirm this. Why Rudy did pass some information to me in June when he finished his investigation, that was long after my columns were done, nothing he gave me at any time or that he suggested or texted to me or emailed me ever showed up in any of my stories. Why? I either had it already or uh, it didn't check out for me. There were some things he, he's mentioned publicly that he's passed on to other reporters, myself included. They didn't check out, so I didn't report them. I don't report things that aren't true. So uh, that's what reporters do on a daily basis. And the idea that the Washington Post and Schiff could demonize this is bad for journalism, bad for free speech, and certainly hurtful to me. All right. So uh, you are all over this. Again, you are the propaganda machine. I guess you're like the Goebbels, maybe, of this story, according to the the press and, um, uh, and the left. Yeah. But they had did they call you to testify? Have you been did you expect no. to be called? Uh, are you no. expecting to be called by the Senate? 
I, I don't, you know, and, and uh, again, I'd have to, there are lots of obligations I have as a journalist, including my, the IP is owned by the Hill. So if that event ever occurred, if I ever was uh, sought to participate, I'd have to go through a process that all journalists have to go through. But there is a lot of supposition that in all of these accusations and all of this smear campaign against me, nobody wants to look at the facts. It's all designed to distract from the facts that I actually have reported. The facts I have reported are incontrovertible. They actually happened. Joe Biden did force the firing. He did use aid. He knew the guy that he was firing was investigating his son. He says he had one intention. The prosecutor suspects he had another. That's a he said, she said. But those facts are not in dispute. And all of this effort by Adam Schiff, the Democrats, and his allies in the media are designed to distract from the fact that the factual trail in my stories is true and un- unassailable. So they engage in character assassination and assassination by affiliation or by assassination by phone records with no context. Uh, I guarantee you, if you ran Rudy Giuliani's phone records, you'd find lots of other reporters in them. Not, not the only one. Why did they single me out? Because my reporting has been inconvenient to the Democrats and the Washington Post and the New York Times for three years. So I, un- I helped unravel the Russia collusion bogus narrative. And now I put another narrative out there that's important, factual, worth debate, that they don't like either. All right. I'm going to take a one minute break and then I come uh, come back because I want to talk to you about that factual uh, information and why the Republicans don't seem to be using the actual documents and the recordings and the, the, the taped testimonies. Why are they not using any of that? What is the game plan that maybe you could see in one minute stand by we're talking to john solomon uh he is the guy who has really busted this story wide open done all the research and he is being smeared by the press he is being smeared by congress um just one quick uh, cleanup question do you have any inkling or any any feeling that you will go after the media or shift with uh, some sort of a lawsuit on what's yeah, happening? Listen, my lawyers and I are taking a look at some of the more outrageously false uh, uh, claims that are in some of these news articles, and, and uh, we'll make a decision soon on whether to take some action. If I do so, it's not to make money. It will be to correct the factual record so that the American public can make a better judgment about uh, what's going on. And, and But, you know, it's sad. It's sad to watch a profession ignore the facts and engage in ad hominem attacks uh, when they have so many of the facts wrong. I mean, when I, I can go through any story and disassemble half the facts, and they're just simply wrong. And I, I have great moments. I've talked to – I had a Washington Post reporter call me one night, and they said, we're writing a story debunking your story. And I said, which one? Oh, I don't know. The one they're talking about on the Hill. And I said, well, have you read the story? And she said, no, I haven't. And I said, well, how can you debunk something you haven't read? I said, I don't have time to read it. And I said, well, there's a very important document in the story. Well, you'll have to send it to me because I don't have time to go get it. Unbelievable. That's how American journalism has been committed against me. And it's really scary. All right, so it's not just about you, uh, but I want to talk about Lusenko. Now, I've talked to Rudy Giuliani, and he's even said, Lusenko is, you know, he says one thing, then he says another, so you can't always take everything that he says at face value, um, you know, and they're all corrupt, as he said. Everybody, you just have to assume going in, don't trust anybody. However, with Lusenko, his name is in this report over 60 times. And yep. every single time he's mentioned, they call him corrupt, yep. but they never cite a charge. 
Why is he considered corrupt now when Biden labeled him as one of the good guys just, you know, the years prior? What did he do? Is there any charge? Is there anything? Because no, they all call him corrupt. But there is no evidence that we can find anywhere that he was charged or questioned about anything. Yeah, in every column I wrote on Ukraine, I carefully noted to the reader that everything in Ukraine is a Wild West. There's a lot of corruption, a lot of politics. Take everything with a grain of salt, but there's enough that here in the factual evidence that you should look at. When I inter- and again, I don't know of any corruption charges that were lodged against Lusenko formally. Uh, certainly not in the time when I interviewed him. He was the sitting attorney general of the country, pretty senior official. But I didn't just take Lusenko's word for things. I went and got the State Department's side of the story. And here's the important part. There's very little difference between the State Department and Lusenko. They want to argue over the word whether a list was given from the ambassador to him. Whether it was a list or a set of names, the State Department has testified under oath. Yes, we did pressure the Ukraine prosecutor's office on multiple cases not to pursue certain people that we liked or that we considered anti-corruption activists. So the the thing that Lusenko was highlighting, that there was this pressure that created resentment between the Ukrainians and the State Department, remains true today. Whether there was a list or just some names discussed, the State Department was interfering in internal investigations of the Ukrainian government, and that made the prosecutors mad. And that's what created that dysfunction I highlighted. And I think that's the part that the Democrats want to ignore, because it's true. Okay, so this this is so easy to explain with Lusenko, but I know you saw the Kent testimony. When Kent was asked, did we pressure, is there any pressure on the embassy, uh, you know, from the embassy or from the State Department, uh, to uh, not prosecute anybody. He said, absolutely not. I can't imagine we did this. I know you have it. We have it as well. A three-page letter written yeah. by Kent. It was. And he in, in the deposition, right? So here's where, here's where the State Department officials get exposed for their diplo speak and their double speak. They'll say it really wasn't pressure when we wrote a letter saying, there's no evidence and you shouldn't be pursuing George Soros's group called ANTAC. It wasn't really pressure when we told them we don't think you should investigate the parliamentary member Lashenko. It really wasn't pressure when uh, we told them not to investigate the journalist named Shabanin. Well, guess what? The Ukrainians took that as pressure. And why? Because they're relying on the U.S. embassy and their aid to, to survive as a country. So they can play semantics with pressure. They can play semantics with list. But what they did was specifically instruct the uh, Ukrainians on multiple occasions, we don't want you pursuing, harassing, investigating, prosecuting these people. And before I did my stories, I interviewed the State Department, and they said, yeah, we did that. Yep, that name we did. Yep, that name we did. And I put that in the story. I did a lot of reporting that didn't rely on, on either Yovanovitch or Lusenko's account of the meeting. It relied on the bigger issue. Is there a dysfunction and pressure going on between the embassy? And that remains true today. So, John, I mean, the volumes of information that you have, um, the documents that that we have um, shared uh, with you, you've you've uh, given to us and we have found additional stuff. Why this case is so clear. Why are the Republicans not sitting down when they're called a conspiracy theory, why are they not sitting in front of television saying, 
Here's the document. Why is this not happening? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer. In some cases, they have. I mean, Devin Nunez has made some pretty strong statements during the hearings, and, and I think Lindsey Graham now is requesting some of these documents, right? There was a document request just last week. I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, each side, each party is going to come to whatever they think their best strategy is, both for resolving impeachment and for 2020 politics and just for traditional oversight. But there is a body of evidence that you have, I have, Rudy Giuliani has, ABC News has, New York Times has. Remember, before the New York Times, Washington Post, and ABC and all these others turned on me, they confirmed my stories back in May and April. Mm-hmm. Then they abandoned them uh, when the criticism of the Democrats began, which is a really odd dynamic in America. But there is a body of trail that those three issues we talked about are true, and they're important oversight issues, and somebody should step to the plate and look at them. That's why I wrote the columns, not to demean any ambassador or cause anything to cause, to highlight public interest issues that probably needed oversight. And, uh, you know, I think the country, most, many people in the country appreciate what I did. Hopefully Congress will do its job and do the oversight and get to the bottom of these issues. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. John, thank you so much for your reporting. Um, and I, I feel for you. I know what it's uh, like to be. Uh, You've been there. Yeah. And, uh, and where do you go to get your reputation back? I want you to know. Uh, we are grateful, and there are millions of Americans that are grateful for what you've done. John Thanks, Solomon. Sir, that means a lot. You bet. Stu, how does this work out in your head, the impeachment? Because uh, I, 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 I have a theory um, but I, I have no idea uh, other than they are, they've just been bitten by the madness. But how does this work out well for the Democrats? Let's say by Christmas they pass articles of impeachment. Well, that means coming in January, when people are paying attention again, the Senate now has control. And the Senate is not going to run the impeachment like the House did. They're going to call witnesses that are going to completely turn this thing upside down, and it will keep some of their candidates off of the campaign trail. Yeah. What is there, five senators running now? Uh, Booker, I mean, Klobuchar, Sanders, Warren, they'd all be. They all have to be at this trial. So how does this work out? You know, first of all, it's the first time it's ever been done in U.S. history. People talk about it being the third or the fourth impeachment uh, that's been, you know, close or has been voted on. Um, Yeah, but none of those were in the middle of an election, Mm -hmm. right? Like those were all second term situations. This is a first term situation in ahead of the election. And I think there's a there's a real case to be made if I'm a Democrat to not rush through this, to drag it out for a long time. Um, because you can drag it out, you can be you can be the sideshow essentially throughout the uh, the primary process, mm-hmm. which is going to focus your voting electorate on who's the most electable to defeat Trump, because it's going to be the main topic. It's not going to be hey, who can come up with the most socialist healthcare system, which has not benefited them at all, and they could just keep running this thing because because Turley's point, which we addressed earlier, is is really clear which is they have not even attempted to call the people who were actually there during these conversations. The reason for that is uh, they don't believe they could get it through the court system fast enough because they want to rush it through before Christmas for some bizarre reason. 
So I think there's a real argument they should go the other way here, drag it out. Then you'd already have a nominee by the time the Senate thing started. So it wouldn't matter with all these senators being uh, pulled off of, of the campaign trail with the possible exception um, you know, of, of what, who. I mean, if Bernie wins or Elizabeth Warren, maybe that could be an issue. But you could just you know, continue to, to drag it out. There's a million ways to get around that. Um, what they're doing here is rushing it through, I think, I kind of go back to our initial uh, vibe on this, which is they want to be able to tell the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, the squad-esque members of their party, they did what they could, they impeached the guy, what else were we supposed to do? The Republicans stopped us, uh, but believe in us, donate to us, we're going for it. Um, without necessarily focusing the rest of the country on it, uh, in the in the biggest marquee way possible, because they're burying this right at, right around the holidays when no one's paying attention. Um, but if it goes to the Senate, it then turns against them, holds them in place. Unless your plan is nobody likes an impeachment process, uh, and they're just going to turn on the Republicans and saying, "Look, we we got this done in an efficient manner, and we we don't want this to drag on." Yeah. And they're just dragging this on for the election. That's and, the only game I can. But I think that's a losing game. Well, nobody's lost money betting on incompetence of Republicans. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so it's possible they could actually yeah. have the Senate hearing blow it so badly that this all turns around on them. Hey, tomorrow on BlazeTV.com, you can get an interview. Uh, did uh, about an hour or so with Nikki Haley, uh, commercial free and. It is uh, on the impeachment uh, and on her time uh, and what she saw behind the scenes. And I, I want to play a couple of clips. If you're a Blaze TV subscriber, you'll get this tomorrow. Uh, it'll be available online for the next couple of days. Saturday, it will go everywhere else on my podcast, but you'll get it early. And it is really worth watching. Here's Nikki Haley on the impeachment. I think the investigation actually should start here in the United States. I think we should look at what sort of conflict of interest Biden had, what was said to the prosecutor, because we've got the videos of things that he had said and things that he demanded. I think we need to look into that. But when you look at the facts, look at the phone calls that have all been provided, Mm -hmm. look at the facts. He was talking to the president of Ukraine about corruption. That president was elected to stop corruption. To stop corruption. So there was a they were two presidents mm-hmm. having a conversation. Him bringing up the investigation. The investigation didn't happen. There's no sign of browbeating. There's no sign of threats and the money flowed. I don't know at what point that even qualifies for impeachment. And that's the thing is it's just so desperate. You know, it's been one investigation after another investigation after another one. The people are getting tired. But more than that, the Democrats might slightly have an ounce of credibility had they not been trying to do this since the day Mm -hmm. he was elected. She goes into how uh, the the attacks on the president are so unconstitutional and within his own cabinet. Listen to her tell the story about Rex Tillerson trying to, quote, save the country. This was a real concern for me because... I saw that he was slow walking things or I saw that they just weren't doing what the president was asking in the National Security Council meetings. But on this day, we had had a meeting in the Oval Office and it was about giving Palestinian aid. And I wanted to pull the aid because they were anti-American. This agency wasn't willing to reform. Mm -hmm. It was a waste of taxpayer Mm -hmm. dollars. The president agreed with me. 
Kelly brought in Rex. Rex countered it. And so he said, y'all go out and figure this out. So me and Rex and Kelly were sitting there and we were talking for about an hour. And I basically was saying, this is what the president wants. And that's when they came in and they said, look, we're not undermining the president. We're trying to save the country. And if we don't do what we're doing by stalling or changing what he wants, people will die. Now, this would be different if they thought he was unfit. This would be different if they thought that he wasn't stable. That's not what their issues were. This is the fact that they didn't agree with getting out of the Iran deal. They didn't agree of getting out of the Paris Climate Agreement. They didn't agree with moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to It's not theirs to agree with. These were policy issues. So if you don't agree on policy, do what I did and go tell the president. But they had every opportunity in National Security Council meetings or quit. Right. And so that was... The bottom line was they just thought they knew better than the president. And the reason this touched a nerve with me is I ran for governor. I know how hard it is to get elected. I know when you make promises to the people that elected you, you want to carry it out. I was offended that they were looking in the mirror every day thinking that they could be president. It's quite remarkable. Um, And this goes to what the impeachment, I believe, is really all about. The State Department. That's Rex Tillerson. At that time, the State Department thinking they know best and they will do whatever they want to do. And they've institutionalized it. And we've shown you all of the documents that prove that. Um, but it was in Trump's own house as well. And they are making him pay. And it's sending a message to any other president. We control the policy, not you. So Nikki Haley, as we're talking, um, you know, she didn't start out as a fan of the president. Her mom was always a fan of Donald Trump, but she wasn't. So I asked her to take me through the 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 hoop here of how she went from not for Donald Trump to Donald Trump's really best selection and biggest defender you were not for trump in the beginning in the beginning i was yeah, not. you were marco rubio and then you went to ted cruz your mom was she was for the pre- she was for president trump the whole time right. from the very first day and and she's an immigrant oh and she loved how straightforward he was she loved the fact that he wasn't going to let the United States get taken for granted. But more than that, she loved what he was going to do on illegal immigration because my parents came to this country because they wanted a better life for their kids. And they put in the time, put in the price and came here legally. They are offended by those who come here illegally. So she very much wanted to do that. And it's funny because we had a lot of talent on that stage. 16 oh, yeah, people. Good people. I was so giddy about that slate. Mm-hmm. And I put my my backing on Marco Rubio, and I remember the president tweeted Nikki Haley's an embarrassment to South Carolina, in which I responded and tweeted, "Bless your heart." I love that. <laughs> Anybody who knows anything about the Carolinas, that's just that's just a polite way to say. F you. <laughs> love that. But, you know, once he won the primary, I supported him in the general. And we were friends before. We actually knew each other. He supported me when I ran for governor the first time. And I got this 
white envelope with this great gold trim. Mm -hmm. And there was a support check in it. And there was a note that said, you're a winner. And we were in touch the entire time. But I... He would fax you stories about you. Oh, yes. He would. And say, keep up the great work. So we were were acquaintances. But, you know, I mean, all of us had to choose a horse in in 16. Uh, It's a fascinating, fascinating conversation with Nikki Haley. Uh, You can listen to the podcast free for everybody on Saturday. If you're a Blaze subscriber, you can get that uh, probably at midnight tonight, but definitely by this time tomorrow. Uh, it will be posted, and uh, and there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there. And if you like Nikki Haley, you're going to come out e- liking her even more. Nikki Haley 2024. It's it's a great interview. Very 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 astute. Very very smart. Uh, and um, and just well put together. Couldn't get her to announce though. Kind of a letdown. Yeah. By you. Yeah. Well, wait. Wait. I just said you didn't do your job as a as an interviewer as a host. Looking at our uh, big board here in the uh, Glenbeck studio, we have a giant board that has all of the names, all the people who have dropped out from the uh, from the race on the Democratic side. Um, but I have to take uh, umbrage. Uh, with oh, no. Stu. Yeah. Umbrage. You had Michael Bloomberg uh, under eh, probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's with Tom Steyer, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, and you put Michael Bloomberg there. He's already doing eight percent. Uh, so you moved him to, I mean, maybe if everything goes right. Yes. I think he belongs in, yeah, he's got a shot. Uh, it's not a. It's not an implausible decision. I mean, you can make the argument he's in fifth place in this campaign right now. Uh, now, he, 8% is above where he's normally polling, we should be clear. He's had some uh, one or two good polls, but he's been, he's above the Amy Klobuchar's, the, the Booker's. He's basically tied with Andrew Yang right now. Um, and Yang has performed very well. You can make the argument he's in fifth too. Yeah, but Bloomberg is a billionaire. But he's a multi- he's yeah. a known he's a known yep. entity. Uh, he will appear to be somebody who could beat Donald Trump. Uh, he won't be afraid. And if Joe Biden drops out or is 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 not winning, uh, you're going to go to Buttigieg, Sanders, Warren, Klobuchar, Booker. It's clearly Michael Bloomberg. Do you think it's Biden or Bloomberg? I do not agree with that analysis at this point. I mean, still, I don't uh, think Warren or Buttigieg could easily win an outside shot of Sanders winning Iowa. Uh, Biden's currently fourth there. But look at what's happening with Warren. I mean, Warren's fallen off, but she's still she's still very competitive in those first two states. And if she were to win those first two states, this whole thing can change really quickly. Remember, Michael Bloomberg's not even on the ballot in these states. So you're going to have uh, two, four races that go down and set some sort of narrative. If it's chaos, it benefits Bloomberg because he's a guy who's essentially right now running in Super Tuesday states unopposed with $53 billion. That's not a terrible position to be in uh, unless this plays out in a way where let's say Elizabeth Warren wins the first two states, which she's very competitive in, um, and it, that may create enough momentum for her to win a couple more states mm-hmm. and she becomes the runaway nominee. I think if Biden is to if Biden wins Iowa, it's hard to argue that without a massive uh event he would not be the overwhelming favorite. I mean, that's the one he's in fourth place in Iowa, but he's still relatively competitive. If he could somehow pull that race out, 
He probably springs to the lead in New Hampshire. South Carolina, he's destroying everyone. Nevada, he's been up for a while as well. He's got a clear path. If he wins those first four states, Bloomberg can take shots at him there, but that's a tough place to come from. Well, it'd be hard for Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden, uh, I mean, if he he just doesn't talk about the hair on his legs and things like that, (laughs) he is going to be the guy. There's too many Democrats that don't want a socialist. It's just too many Democrats. I uh, think that's true. And, and, and that's the argument for Buttigieg here, by the way, who comes he's out. He's a mayor of a small town. I know, but he's le- basically in the lead or front runner in Iowa. If he wins Iowa, he goes to another very white state uh, where he is performing decently well, has a lot of uh, sort of, you know, uh, college graduate liberals there that would like Buttigieg. Well, I don't know be, how he does anything in South Carolina. He'd but. be the guy and maybe Andrew Yang. I don't know how old Yang is, but Buttigieg and Andrew Yang, those are the two that historically uh, would perform well because the Democrats always lose in these cycles when it's old. That's true, yeah. They, they, they always win when it's somebody new and vibrant like Obama or Clinton. JFK, Clinton. Mm-hmm. When it's somebody old, they usually lose. They lose. And Kamala gone. We didn't even mention that today, yeah. which shows how well her campaign was going. Uh, but we're yeah. gonna miss her. Oh my gosh, she oh, was. Geez, I mean, she really. She's one of those candidates that actually had a shot. She did and, and blew, blew it. it. Just uh, absolutely. Her blew and Beto it. are the two big examples of that out of this cycle. There's other people who have come and gone and never really had a chance. Gillibrand never got a look, right? Harris and Beto both had their chance and people saw strangely they both did the same thing they just went super super left and got desperate it's the glenn beck program